I'd like for you to take your Bibles, uh, whether that's a physical copy or a digital device, and find uh, Luke's gospel, please. Luke will be found in the New Testament. There are four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So Luke is gospel number three. That doesn't mean he's third most important. It's just the canon of order that we've been given. You have Matthew, you have Mark, and then you have Luke, okay? Now, when you find Luke's gospel, especially if you're new to the Bible, and, and you've never really studied much of it, and you're trying to figure it all out, I want you to know that the big letters, the big letters in the Bible, uh, represent the chapter markers. So if I say Luke chapter 14, go find the big, the big numbers, all right? The big numbers, 14. And then the small numbers, the small numbers represent the verses, all right? The verses. So this morning, we're beginning in Luke's gospel, that's in the New Testament, uh, chapter 14, that's the big numbers, and we're going to find verse 1. That's the small number, all right? Luke 14, verse 1, and we're going to read down through verse 24. It is a rather lengthy passage, but I, I hope you'll be patient as we let God's Word just kind of soak, soak in our hearts and minds as we read it together. And then we're going to talk about some lessons from the dinner table. Luke chapter 14 and verse 1. One Sabbath when he, that's Jesus, went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? They remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And then he said to them, Which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. 
The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. He didn't even have to be asked to be excused. We just understood that was the situation. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. And the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded us to do, we've, we've done and there is still room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges. Compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my banquet. The dinner table is a wonderful place for discipleship. I want you to think about that. The dinner table is a wonderful place for discipleship. The question that Kathleen and I are often asked by parents of young children, and we are not often asked many questions by parents of young children because they see how we parent our young children. They don't need to ask any questions. But when we do get a question from time to time, it is often when and where and what do family devotions look like for your family. In fact, I was asked that this week. Uh, when do you have family devotions? What do family devotions look like? How do you do family devotions? And I often say in response to that first that both the seasons of life as well as the context of our children during the week uh, dictate our approach to this. For example, the broad range of ages between our children can make formal teaching in our home uh, on a nightly basis extremely challenging due to their differing bedtimes, uh, there are many homework assignments and, of course, other caretaking responsibilities. We also take into consideration the amount of Bible teaching our children are already getting throughout the week between their enrollment at a Christian school and their heavy, heavy, heavy involvement in our church ministry here at Laurel through the children's program. They're, they're getting a lot of Bible teaching. So, so when, I, when I respond that the seasons of life as well as the context of our children during the week dictate this, that, that's what I mean. The, the context of our children's life, their varying age, all the responsibilities that we have often dictate for us what that looks like at various times in our child rearing. However, all that being said, that doesn't negate our parental responsibility to train up our children in the things of the Lord. Now, I only mention that to simply show you how context dictates what we do in our family discipleship. And here's what we found that's working right now for us. We have found that the dinner table is the one place where in this season of our family life, the oldest being 12, the youngest being 2, in this season of our life, everyone at the dinner table is collectively settled. They are, for a brief moment in the day, relatively quiet. They are focused and attentive to all of our conversations. They can't go anywhere. They don't want to go anywhere because they're getting fed. Food has a way of doing that, doesn't it? 
Now, that's what we take advantage of in our home. We take advantage of that by using the dinner table as our primary venue for discipleship while sitting there enjoying the wonderful ham that my wife made this week along with all the sides. In fact, it was so good, I had it two more times yesterday. As we're sitting there eating this food, we have important conversations with our children. We work through the New City Catechism together. We share what God is teaching us in our own personal walk with the Lord. We also review the importance of scriptural principles in all of our lives, correcting things that perhaps may need to be corrected and encouraging our children where they may be discouraged. We've also found that the dinner table is a great place for confession and repentance. In fact, most of my apologies to my family, my children, for maybe the way I disciplined or my negligence in a particular moment in which they needed my attention is often confessed to them and repented to them why we are stuffing our faces with food. Because they're listening. They're listening. And so it's around the dinner table where we provide accountability in our commitments to Christ. In fact, I would go as far as to say, and I think my siblings would attest to this, that even as an adult child at the age of 41, which doesn't mean I'm getting old, it means my parents are getting old. As an adult child at the age of 41, to this very day, my parents continue to use the dinner table in our own life as a means of teaching Christ to their adult children, as well as their grandchildren, as we come together as a family. I can tell you, even in recent months, as we've gathered around the home of my parents, sitting around there enjoying my dad's wonderful brisket and barbecue and all that stuff that old people do, (laughs) we have heard some wonderful things from my father and what God is teaching him. And how that has encouraged us in our own relationship with the Lord. So, so I, I say all of that is a way of introduction this morning to encourage you as parents to take that God-given responsibility that you have to disciple those in your home and take advantage of the dinner table to do that. I know nighttime can be hectic. I mean, there's bedtimes, homework assignments, ball practice, all of that. But But make the dinner table, a dinner table, a place of discipleship. Use it to teach your children how to pray, to talk through what you're learning in the sermons here at church and in the classes they attend, and to encourage each other toward constant Christ-likeness. But I'm not giving you a novel idea. Dinner table discipleship is something Jesus has been doing since he began his ministry. In fact, when we look closely at our Lord's ministry, we find that much of his small group discipleship was carried out around a dinner table. His first earthly miracle, for example, turning water into wine, was performed around a dinner table at a wedding he attended in John chapter 2. Matthew, also called Levi, one of his disciples, hosted a dinner party in his home and invited many tax collectors and sinners so that Jesus could eat with them and speak to them about the kingdom of God. We even studied here recently in Luke chapter 7 how Jesus ate dinner at the house of uh, Simon the Moody. I mean, Simon the Pharisee. No relation. 
no relation. He ate dinner at the house of Simon the Pharisee, and during that dinner, Jesus told all of them about forgiveness. Of course, there was the dinner at Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' house. There was the feeding of the 5,000, which was pretty exceptional dinner. I think you'd agree with me about that. And never far removed from our minds is the scene of the Last Supper. The Last Supper where Jesus washed the disciples' feet. And to top it all off, as we've already alluded to in our worship together this morning, the greatest dinner to come is what Scripture teaches us as the marriage supper of the Lamb. When we will all gather together around the dinner table of the Lord and we will share in a meal with Jesus. I mean, just think for a moment all the things we're going to learn together at that dinner table. I can't wait. I'm going with all my questions. What a wonderful thing it is going to be to have dinner with Jesus and for him to continue his discipleship of our lives. Clearly, the dinner table was one of Jesus' favorite places to disciple others. And as we've read, it is the context of our study today. Verse 1 says, look at it again, one Sabbath he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. Now, I want you to imagine something with me this morning. Imagine that not only is Jesus your dinner guest, which is enough to cause many of us to be filled with anxiety as we prepare that dinner. But imagine that over dinner, he confronts you directly and personally about your true motive for inviting him to the dinner. Imagine him confronting you about the error of everyone's attitude and behavior at the dinner. Imagine him confronting you about the overall problem with who's even on the guest list. And as in the case of every dinner with Jesus, this would certainly be one they would never forget. But there are lessons here. And that's why I've entitled it Lessons from a Dinner Table. The first lesson that Jesus is teaching us here is a lesson about hypocritical motives. Hypocritical motives. First, in verse 1, notice that this takes place on the Sabbath day. Wouldn't you agree that every time we turn around, it seems the Pharisees are up in arms about Jesus and his ministry on the Sabbath day? It was on the Sabbath that Jesus had cast out demons. It was on the Sabbath that he healed Peter's mother. It was on the Sabbath that he healed a man with a withered hand. And most recently, as we studied just a couple of weeks ago, it was on the Sabbath day that he healed a woman with spondylitis. You see, the Pharisees had developed strict rules around the Sabbath, which they continually accused Jesus of undermining and violating on each one of these occasions. Now, let me say, it is true that Jesus had undermined and violated their rules. But he had not undermined or violated the law. We have to understand that distinction. Yes, Jesus had violated their rules, but he had not violated the law of God. But this is where the conflict between religious leaders and Jesus often played out. Not 
on the grounds of what Scripture actually said, but on the grounds of the man-made rules they had added to Scripture. And erroneously, these Pharisees had made those man-made rules equivalent to Scripture itself. And this is the problem. This is the problem. It's why we see the incessant antagonization by the Pharisees against Jesus due to his activities on the Sabbath day. And exactly what was Jesus' activity on this particular Sabbath? Well, I'd go as far as to say that in every one of these occasions, the Pharisees were ticked off because Jesus had made his day a day of grace. That's why they're ticked off. He had made the Sabbath day a day of merciful grace. Now, I believe Jesus loved doing so. I believe he loved making the Sabbath day a day of mercy for the same reasons that I believe he loves making the Lord's day a day of mercy. Isn't there something uniquely special about the way Jesus works in our hearts on the Lord's day? I get it. I I know that he can work in ways on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and all the other days of the week. I know he can work in our hearts when we're sitting at home or driving down the car. I know that. But there's something uniquely special about the way Jesus works in the hearts of people on the Lord's day. It's why when you and I are not present on the Lord's day with Jesus Christ. We miss these mercifully gracious moments with Jesus. Many of you have a testimony of coming to Christ in faith on the Lord's day. Many of you have had marriages saved on the Lord's day. Many of you had God speak in a still small voice on the Lord's day. I think Jesus loved giving mercy and grace on the Sabbath just like he loves giving mercy and grace on the Lord's day. And it's for this very reason, his ongoing ministry of merciful grace on the Sabbath day that he is invited to a dinner party in the home of a chief Pharisee. Not just any Pharisee. This is a chief Pharisee. He's a ruler of the Pharisees. And the only reason they've invited him is because they know that Jesus, who claims to be the Son of God, likes to do miracles on the Sabbath day. And that motive becomes quickly apparent, doesn't it? Look at the end of verse 1. They were watching him Carefully. They were watching him carefully. Waiting. Hoping. Listening. They wanted him to mess up so badly. To be the And Abiwe said, it's just like a Pharisee to cause conflict on the day of rest and worship. I think that's pretty wise insight, isn't it? It's just like a Pharisee to cause conflict on the day of rest and worship. Friends, this whole thing was a setup. 
their hospitality toward Jesus was a disguised hypocrisy. They, they, they weren't interested in serving him dinner. They were interested in trapping him. So much so that it seems they positioned the man in need of healing right in front of Jesus just to test him, just to see what he would do. Can you imagine the disgust here? That perhaps the only reason they wanted that man who was weak and failing and in need of a touch of grace, the only reason they wanted him there was just to trap Jesus? Their motives are hostile toward Christ. They are waiting. They are watching, ready to pounce on him the moment he says or does anything that goes against their way of thinking. And they're doing it underneath the disguise of friendly hospitality. What a disgusting display of hypocrisy, you say. Now, let me ask you a couple questions. Have you ever disguised hatred towards someone with a smile? Have you ever disguised a gossiping heart with a kind embrace? Have you ever invited someone to dinner intending to get something from them under the disguise of wanting to give something to them? Have you ever disguised a nitpicky spirit of criticism and the desire to control under the pretense and disguise of care and concern? Church family, hypocrisy is not just something we read about at a dinner party in Judea 2,000 years ago. Hypocrisy is here. Hypocrisy is in us. Hypocritical motives are inside the heart of the man or woman we look at in the mirror. It is disgusting what they're doing to Jesus. It's also disgusting what we do to others. Well, the sick man before Jesus had dropsy. What in the world is dropsy? Does that mean he dropped a lot of stuff? Well, maybe. I don't know. But the medical term of it is a condition that develops through excess fluids in the body. He's in a great deal of pain. He's obviously known by everyone to need healing. So, when he looks at the man, Jesus asks those around the table two questions. He says, first, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And then he asks, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And, of course, the whole dinner party remains silent. Not one word comes out of their mouth. And so Jesus gives them what they're looking for. He gives them mercy on the Sabbath day. Verse 4 says, he took the man, this is the man who had dropsy, the man in need of healing. He took the man and he healed him and then he sent him away. Very simple, very straightforward. He took the man, he healed him, and then he sent them away. But the silence of those at the dinner party spoke volumes. 
It spoke volumes because they could not find one point in the entire scriptures that forbade the healing of this man on the Sabbath day. Not one point in all the scriptures. They could find it in their rules. They could find it in their preferences. They could find it in their agendas. But the reason they're not saying anything is because of how Jesus asked the question. Is it lawful? Is it lawful? What does the scripture say? Should I heal this man or not? They're saying nothing because the scripture says nothing. And then after the man's healed, they find themselves resentful and offended by Jesus' ministry. Not only because he undermined their rules, but because they could not see what the kingdom of God was truly like. That's what hypocritical motives will do. Listen to me carefully and I'm going to move on. Hypocritical motives always blind us to the reality of Christ and his merciful grace. Hypocritical motives always blind us to the reality of Christ and his merciful grace. So that's the first lesson we learn at this dinner party. It's a lesson about hypocritical motives. Secondly, we learn a lesson about self-serving attitudes. Self-serving attitudes. Interestingly, Jesus sent the man away who had just been healed. Again, I think, I think that's another insight as to the real true motive as to why he was even there. Maybe none of these people were even his friends. Maybe he was coerced or manipulated in being there. Jesus knew he didn't even want to be here. So he said, look, man, get out of here. You can go. You don't have to stay. I'll deal with this. And so he sends the man away. But Christ himself chooses to stay. He continues teaching around the table. It wasn't enough to simply point out their hypocritical motives. He now wants them to see their self serving attitudes. For when the guest came into the home that day, verse 7 says, look at it there, he, that is Jesus, noticed how they chose the places of honor. The scene is somewhat of a chaotic posturing. When the door was open, perhaps they took off running pushing their way around, throwing an occasional elbow to make sure that they had positioned themselves to get the best seats, the seats of honor, which are in context the seats closest to the host. Perhaps you've been in an environment that way before. At the beginning of a of a ball game. Everybody's lined up for the door. Maybe it's a, a free reign. Sit wherever you want. And they open up the gates and everybody's in a big melee, throwing elbows, jumping over kids. That is, we adults, jumping over kids to make sure we get the best seats. It seems to be a chaotic posturing. It was a common cultural understanding that in these situations where one sat at the dinner party indicated their social rank compared to the other guests. Of course, the closer to the host, the greater opportunity for his attention and blessing. Much like in church, the closer to the host, the greater opportunity you will get spit upon. <laughs> and so in this case, the closer you sat to the host of the dinner, the closer you got blessed by him. Well, they had been carefully watching Jesus, but what do we notice here? Jesus had been watching them, specifically how arrogant they were, how self-centered they all were, jockeying for position, posturing themselves for recognition. None of them 
were willing to take their place at the back in places they wouldn't be recognized. No, they all wanted to be up front. They all wanted to be close to the host. They all wanted their egos to be pampered by sitting in the best seats. This is another indication as to why they were not merciful people. Think about it. Their rules were about them. Their righteousness was about them. Their parties were about them. Pride, arrogance, and a self-serving attitude dominated their hearts and minds. So Jesus speaks up. And he says, I saw how you came into this house today. If you really want to know the rules and the principles of God's kingdom, then stop seeking out for yourself the places of honor. When you come to a party, go and sit at the lowest place. And if the host comes and moves you up, then you'll be honored. But stop seeking to honor yourself. Stop seeking to exalt yourself. Instead, Jesus says, humble yourself. Take the back seat. Let the host determine in the end who gets the seat. Because brothers and sisters, it is better to start low and let God exalt you than to start high and force God to humble you. And that's good for any of us. It is better to start low and let God promote you than to start high and God have to humble you. There's a lesson here we need not forget. And I don't want to move past it too quickly. And that is what Jesus is inferring is that the host who is God himself is the one who determines the seats we sit in. Do you understand that? It is the host, God himself, who determines the seats we sit in. We all are accustomed to it. My dear friend over here, Rufus, decided that he would take me Tuesday night to Chapel Hill to watch the Tar Heels play because they're playing so good that it's obvious they're going to get a win, and so let's go when we know they're going to win. It'll be a great environment, and we went, and they lost, which is why he's never going to take me to his seats again. <laughs> but before we went there, we went to this really cool soda shop in Pittsburgh. If you're ever traveling in that area, let one of us know. We'll tell you where to go. It was awesome. I had this thing called the, what was that thing? The Gambler. Had steak and onions and french fries on it. It was so good. Followed it up with an orange creamsicle milkshake. I mean, it was, it was one of the best dates I've been on in a long time. <laughs> but as we walked in that day for lunch, we saw something at the front that you see in just about any restaurant. And it's a sign that simply reads... The host will seat you. 
the host will seat you. And I want to put that in your mind this morning because every time you see that, I want it to be a reminder to you. The host will seat you. You don't have to seat yourself in the high honored places. You don't have to manipulate things. The host will seat you. And shame and embarrassment will come to those who force their way into the seats God has not given them. That actually happened to us recently too. We have a new favorite barbecue place in town. And I'm sorry, five guys, uh, it's, um, this is really good. It's the smoke pit. Have you been to the smoke pit? I've never been there. And then uh, Al Overcamp was so kind over Christmas to give my family and I a gift card. And uh, he felt sorry for us. And so uh, he gave us a gift card so we could go out and get a good meal. And uh, so we went to the smoke pit in Concord. I'm telling you, I've been back several times since then. I think right now, as it stands right now, it's my favorite barbecue place in Charlotte. I mean, it's just really, really good. But they have a new rule because the word's getting out about it. It's crowded in there. I wasn't fully aware of the rule, but you have to get in line and order your food before you can go sit. Well, that's hard for a family like ours that has like 60 people in it. I mean, it's tough. I mean, when you go in and you look at the waitress on any given day and say, party of six, you can hear the huff in their voice, like, has to be six, doesn't it? We're going to put tables together. We're going to sit you over here. You know, you need a high chair? Okay, great. So I saw a table open. About all the tables were filled except for this one table that had about seven or eight seats on it. It was the only table that was available that could sit our family. So I sent the kids. I said, hey, guys, go sit at that table. Mom and dad are getting ready to order, and then we'll meet you over there. About two minutes later, somebody comes to us and said, are those your kids over there? Those aren't my kids. I don't know whose kids they are. They belong to somebody else. Yeah, those are, those are our kids. Well, we, we have a policy here that you can't sit down until you order your food, and the people order your food need that. And I understand it. I totally get it. But, man, that, what an embarrassing vault to go over there and say Come on, kids, you can't sit there. you got to come stand back in line with us. This is the whole point of what he's saying. If you don't let God seat you in the appropriate places that he's designed and picked for you, you're going to experience a lot of shame and embarrassment, a lot of humbling. Of course, this self-serving attitude wasn't just prevalent among the guests, but in the story, it was apparent in the host as well. Jesus turns to the ruler of the Pharisees, the host of the dinner party, and he says to him, look, in verse 12, when you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. No, when you give a feast, you invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they can't repay you. They can't do anything for you in return. You focus on getting paid at the resurrection. So I need you to understand this because this is confusing, isn't it? Jesus, in the form of a parable, is using what we call a hyperbole to, to prove a spiritual point. We see him do this often, by the way. Do you remember Luke 14? Well, we're in Luke 14. We're going to get to it probably next week. Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters, yea, in his own life, life, also he cannot be my disciple. 
You got to hate your family in order to follow Jesus. So G- Jesus is not literally calling his followers to hate their family. Rather, he's calling his followers to love him more than they love their family. He's not saying you got to put your family out in order to follow Jesus. He's using hyperbole, hyperbole, to emphasize the point that a love for Jesus is to be preeminent even over a love of family. And that's what Jesus is doing here as well. He's not saying, church family, we are never to invite our close friends or family over for dinner. That's not what he's saying. His point, rather, is, and listen carefully, if we only ever serve people who serve us in return, or if we only ever include the people who are just like us, then we've missed what it means to share in kingdom hospitality. Christ-centered hospitality acknowledges your friends. Christ-centered hospitality acknowledges your family. But Christ-centered hospitality also does not exclude the stranger. It doesn't exclude the oppressed. It doesn't exclude the poor. So what Jesus is doing here is he's hammering them for their elitism, their exclusivism. They only serve those whom they hope will serve them in return instead of actually serving people whom they know will never be able to host them, will never be able to do anything for them in that regard. So let's, let's take a quick evaluation before we move on. Look, look at yourself. As I look at myself, look at not only how you handle the seat that God has given you to sit in today, the the proverbial seat of your life, but take a look at your lunch fellowships and your dinner parties, parties and your coffee appointments and your baby showers. Now, I'm not harping on anybody because I'm as guilty as anybody. I don't think we do these things purposefully. I really don't. But at times, we don't realize how closed in we are on the comforts of our own groups while neglecting to show hospitality to those who are outside the group. But think about this with me. Are your dinner parties exclusive to your close-knit friends? When it's game night, is it only the people that you know really, really well? Is it exclusive to just those in your culture, in your culture alone? Is it always and only your family? Is it always those whom you think will do something for you in return because of your hospitality toward them? These are tough questions. Or perhaps is it true that like most of us, we need to be more intentional at serving those who may never be able to serve us in return. It's another wonderful dinner lesson from Jesus. Self-serving attitudes build kingdoms around themselves while remaining blind to the needs of others. So stop choosing the best seat, Jesus says. And when you have a party, 
Step outside your culture, your family, and your friends and go embrace somebody you don't know. The stranger, the poor, the oppressed. That's how the kingdom of God works. All right, last one and I'm done and I know you're glad. Number three, worldly distractions. This is the third lesson that he gives us at the dinner party, worldly distractions. A lesson on self-serving attitudes, a lesson on hypocritical motives, now a lesson on worldly distractions. Now, it's possible that Jesus was probably done with lesson two, but someone decides to speak up. Don't you love that guy? We could have got out of here a long time ago, and you got to be the one to say something. And now here we go, another 30 minutes. Verse 15, one of the Pharisees said, after hearing him just say this, inviting other people into the, into the dinner, well, the way I see it, Jesus, blessed is everyone, everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, if you look closer, you're going to see a couple of things here. First, you're going to see that he assumes he will be eating in the future kingdom of God. He assumes that. He's not taking the sermon and lessons that Jesus is preaching and applying them to himself. He's applying them to everybody else. He assumes, he assumes he's already in. The second thing he does here is he infers that Jesus is making too big of a deal about the poor and the oppressed when he and his rich friends are also part of God's family. So Jesus gives a third lesson. And the lesson revolves around their thinking that they're in the kingdom of God, yet they have continued to reject the invitation of the Son of God, making them outsiders. It's a real simple parable. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. There's so many different routes we could take with it. And if you've been around any length of time as a follower of Christ, you've heard this passage preached a hundred different ways, and rightfully so, by the way. What I want you to focus on is the fact that this man prepared a dinner party and he sent out invitations to a lot of people. When it came time for the dinner to take place, he sent his servant to all of those who were on the dinner list. And he sounded the invitation to come. You see the invitation in verse 17. Come, everything's now ready. Come, everything's now. The dinner bell is ringing. Let's go. Dinner's on the table. Come on. But then in verse 18, it says, all of those on his dinner list began to make excuses for why they couldn't come. One said, I bought a field and I need to go see it. Now, I think about these things and I wonder what that conversation was like. You bought a field and you need to go see it. What, what are you seeing it for? Like, are you just going to go and stare at it for the next four hours? So... I think the principle here is money, it's possessions, and frankly, he just didn't want to go. No, I just bought a field, and I just need to go watch my field. Do nothing. Then the other one comes along and says, well, I can't come either. I've bought some new cattle, and I need to examine them. Okay, it's a little better of an excuse. But still, he's using time, time as an excuse. He just I didn't have time to come to the dinner. I know I'm on the guest list. I know the invitation was sent out a long time ago. And now dinner's ready, but you know what? I just don't have 
time. Of course, I wish I was there for the next conversation. Hey, dinner's ready. Come on. Master's ready. Well, I can't come. Why can't you come? I got married. Well, so what? You got married. Well, she won't let me come. Now, whether that was true or not, that is exactly what he's saying. That is exactly what he's saying. He's blaming it all on her. Using relationships as an excuse for why he couldn't come to the dinner. I've married a wife. I can't come. So it would appear, given the context that prompted Jesus to tell this parable, that those who made the excuses for why they could not come probably think they're still in good standing with the host. But the parable quickly shows that that was not the case at all, was it? They rejected his invitation, and he gave their spots to those who actually wanted to come. He rejected their invitation, and he rejected them, and he gave their spots to those who actually wanted to come. Look at verse 21. The master said to his servant, go out then to the streets and lanes of the city. That is, go to the urban areas and bring in all the poor, crippled, blind, and lame. All right, servant did that. There was still more room. So the master says, all right, now go out to the highways and hedges. In other words, go out to the, the, the rural areas. You've gone to the urban areas, go to the rural areas. Compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you that none of those men who were on the guest list, none of those men who were invited and rejected it, they will never taste my banquet. It's pretty clear, isn't it? Those who are distracted by the things of this world, making excuses for why they cannot come to Jesus, why they do not have time to worship him, why they can't sit down in the house in communion with him, yet they still think, they still think that they are somehow going to sit at the next dinner Jesus prepares for them in heaven. Those people are foolishly and arrogantly mistaken. Worldliness has distracted them. Excuses have dominated. And because they rejected Jesus, Jesus has rejected them. And that's the third lesson here at this dinner. Worldly distractions prevent us from accepting the gracious invitation of Jesus to come and commune with him. Be careful before you begin to think that your rejection of Jesus doesn't mean anything as it relates to your future prospect with Jesus. It's quite a dinner party, isn't it? And it's the last time <laughs> we see Jesus being invited to the house of a Pharisee for dinner. I don't think there's any reason for us to wonder why, is there? They hated him. They hated him. Ever been invited to someone's house and never <laughs> invited back? Well, the Pharisees had had enough. Jesus was a barrier to their self-righteous, elitist legalism. Are you listening? Don't pack up yet. Listen. Jesus was a barrier to their self-righteous, elitist legalism. A legalism that convinced them that they knew God, but in reality they were far from him. And I just need to make the point one more time this morning on whether or not legalism has actually convinced you of the same. That you know God because you do all these rules and you live all this way, but in reality you're far from Him. So I think as we think through these lessons, we have to ask ourselves, where is it we have to sit all the time? Who is it that we most often eat with 
And why do we keep offering excuses for not putting Jesus first? Oh, come. Come. The dinner has been prepared by Jesus. It's now ready. Confess your sins. Come to Jesus on this beautiful day of merciful grace. Let's stand together for prayer.